Welcome to Simply by DOHQ. On this podcast, we engage thought leaders on topical issues around law and business in the most simplistic manner. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Simply by Deal HQ. Today on the episode, we're going to be talking about COP26 and the future of businesses in Nigeria. We will be focusing on our preparedness and the call to action for Nigerian businesses. Um, as a way of introduction, um, COP26 is undoubtedly the most talked about phenomenon in global politics and business circles today. Following the successful wrap of the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, United Kingdom, which saw political and business leaders from over 200 countries agree to the Glasgow Climate Pact and make climate and financial commitments on behalf of their respective countries via the Glasgow Pact, which is a critical step towards a net zero future. Over 151 countries, including Nigeria, submitted their national determined contribution, which is their new climate plan, off of the Paris Agreement. The Nigerian government at the conference spoke boldly about its commitment to cut carbon emission to net zero by 2060, whilst adopting a bottom-up renewable energy transition leading to year 2030. The country's leadership also called on developed nations to increase the climate finance commitment to developing countries through the global goal on adaptation. As is our custom on Simply, we will be engaging a subject matter expert to help our audience grapple the imports of COP26 and how the climate action collaboration is likely to shape the future of global business, the financial markets, and the economy. My guest today is none other than the very beautiful Rukaya El Rufai. Rukaya is Partner Sustainability and Climate Change at PricewaterhouseCoopers Nigeria. Rukaya, thank you so much for making the time to join me on Simply today. I know you've been traveling a lot and I know this has taken its toll to even just set out a time to join me today. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me and I'm excited to be here and talk about this very important hot topic like you mentioned. So thank you. Yes. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump jump right into it because I'm sure that a lot of us are dying to understand the force about COP26 and all the other things that everybody is talking about off of the end of the United Nations um, Climate Conference. So my first question, Rukaya, for the benefit of many of us ordinary humans who are caught in the haze of all the climate action, net zero, NDC, adaptation fund, and all the other lingos that have come out of Glasgow that we don't understand because we are ordinary humans. Can you just help us understand what exactly is this COP26? What is it all about? How does it impact a business person here far away in Africa? And why should we even care about what experts like yourselves are talking about? How does it concern us? Can you just help us understand why we need to be paying attention? Yes. 
Okay, thank you for that, you know, very um, good start of um, this um, session. Um, like you said, there's so many buzzwords, you know, um, and so many meanings I read into them. Um, COP26 is simply, you know, the 26th in the series of conference of parties to you know, the UNFCCC, which means the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is, you know, just a platform the United Nations have put um, together to enable that collaborative um, action and also even, you know, the negotiation framework to tackle this common problem of climate change that faces everyone. So, you know, the, the, and what COP brings together parties, you know, of um, 196 countries, you know, um, and the main aim was to ratify, you know, the treaty, um, you know, uh, agreed, you know, in earlier milestone conferences. So the first was, you know, the meeting and adoption of even the COP in 1992, during the Earth Summit in Europe, the Janeiro. There's also the Kyoto Protocol. Then, you know, um, there was the pra uh, Paris, uh, um, you know, conference as well that gave birth to the Paris um, Agreement. And that, this is, you know, the, the, the foundation that COP, you know, aimed to, to, to bring, um, um, you know, on board to build on, you know, and reach, you know, an actionable, uh, plan, you know, to really tackle uh, climate change. Like I mentioned earlier, it's a common problem. You know, um, climate change, when you look at it, worsens poverty. You know, it, um, you know, it also affects, you know, uh, growth, you know, and we're faced with rapid population, rapid urbanization, you know, and everyone is as vulnerable. So, you know, whether developed, whether you're coming from a developed country or you're coming from a developing country, many people will likely be pushed into poverty if we do not, you know, limit global warming to two degrees centigrade or preferably 1.5 degrees centigrade um, uh, compared to pre-industrial uh, uh, level. So it's COPE became the most prominent international treaty that recognizes anthropogenic climate change, you know, uh, and also provides that framework for negotiations. And I say anthropogenic because it's based from a word called anthropathy, where we, we humans, through how we've developed an industry. <laughs> yes, we, we have, we have um, you know, uh, uh, adversely affected the planet. Um, it's causing instability of the earth with extreme weather, absolutely wildfires, mm. and all that. So, we we were stable. We created a stable planet that enabled civilization. So we've entered into that era where we have we are destabilizing the planet, and it's you know a threat to our civilizations. People think this is a joke, but it's truly an existential threat. We have, we go to tour and see past civilizations. We need to take this seriously and, and think what happened, you know, so that, you know, yes. um, we take any adaptation and mitigation seriously. So when you look Absolutely. at Africa, and I'm bringing it down to, to Africa now, 
please that's that's very important yes. so that i mean because for a lot of people these things sound so far away you know it's for developing countries they cause the problem they should fix it yes. you know we are still battling poverty we can't even eat why are we going to be talking about um climate action and sustainability the that's that's the sense the sentiment of a lot of people this is the exact reactions i get you can imagine as a consultant when you're trying to you know, um, convince people and persuade people. So, yes, when you look at the emissions, um, the G20 contribute to 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So when you break it down between adaptation and mitigation, you'll see that whatever we do with mitigation, we're not the Pareto. So in fact, the G7 itself, just the G7, if they implement their net zero um, commitments, commitments, it will limit global warming to 1.7 degrees. But we are highly, highly impacted by adaptation. Um, so, so yes, and, and I am very pers uh, optimistic about Africa. I believe. We'll because this thing is a journey so a lot of people rukaya sorry sorry to cut you a lot of oh, people will be wondering what what you mean by adaptation can you help us just understand okay. what what that is and how it differs from mitigation okay okay so adaptation is simply how you respond to the crisis so in those coastal regions that they're having rising sea level how do you build housing how does that community adapt and create ways to thrive amidst that change. Because with adaptation, you're responding to, you know, those, the crisis that has crystallized, you know, so even in how you build infrastructure and all that. For in Africa, the focus, um, uh, you know, uh, has been, I don't know if you've heard in Nigeria, Africa, there's a collaborative, um, project called the Great Green Wall, where they're trying to build, you know, plant trees. Yes, absolutely. To help with, with... And our president has been talking, talking a lot about another wall. <laughs> exactly. So, so the, 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 you know, with, with mitigation in Africa, the focus is on agriculture, you know, uh, because yes. for us, in developing countries, most of the emissions come from agriculture, you know, and, you know, it's, yes. it's normally, you know, the way of, um, um, you know, um, t t taking in, you know, the carbon, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sink, you know, for absorbing carbon emissions. So um, it's yes. very important for us, you know, uh, to mitigate that way. But the important point I want to make here is Africa shouldn't, I think we shouldn't be pessimistic about this because we do hope to industrialize. This is an unwanted consequences that um, developed countries found out. You know, they didn't do it intentionally. It's a consequence of how we build our economy. So there is, we're in the face of an economic revolution where we have to change the way we build our economies. Mm, and that's absolutely. why every entrepreneur should take this seriously because indirectly, right, it would affect people and it, very soon it will become a direct impact. Uh, uh, so, so it's funny, 
It's funny you said that. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine just a few days ago, and he, he was saying to me that, you know, the, the interesting thing about the way the whole climate action thing is morphing is that it has now become a risk mitigation tool in the hands of the private sector and business owners and investors and um, holders of capital and what have you, as opposed to just one of those things that people do to tick the boxes. Because at the end of the day, the businesses themselves need to be able to ensure that they are not, their existence is not, you know, at risk. Yes. So, so, yes. so you are absolutely right, you know, um, that it's become a, a platform for risk management and also for value creation. You know, because, you know, uh, right now businesses have changed, you know, to uh, from from focusing on enterprise value creation to shared value creation. Because when you look at the world's challenges, it impacts businesses as well. And, you know, there's a big push to have non-state actors as well. And I'm telling you, it's very impressive. The, the, the yes, the turnout at Glasgow from the non-state participants was 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 really something to note. So, was so really what, really something to note. So what we're even seeing is they're making policy irrelevant. So let me pick automotive industry. Most car manufacturers have pledged to stop producing cars based on combustible engine from 2040. So that yes. move itself has made any policy or regulation irrelevant because absolutely i was just going to say this is very impressive because not only was where the non-state participants making commitments on very unusually too all the commitments that we're making were time bound and very specific exactly because when it comes to climate change it's very science-based and target-based and you know the journey starts with even understanding your footprint directly and indirectly through your value chain, then you now set targets, you know, through, and, and so, so, so it's very fact-based and data-driven, you know, so yes. you're, you're identifying initiatives that will help you achieve, and there's a lot of innovation uh, required. Okay. Yes. So, so, so I'm going to have to move the, the conversation back to Nigeria now because of the, okay. the, the, the timing constraints that we have. I know we can stay on this topic for God knows how long and just keep talking because there's so much to say. So um, at, at the conference, our president, the president of Nigeria, President Mohamed Buhari, went to the conference and spoke very boldly about um, the Nigerian commitment, yes. um, of course, which was also very time bound. This was commended by a lot of world leaders, but yeah. I know that a lot of people share sentiments around our commitments being unrealistic, overly ambitious, and all of that, because yeah. as of 2021, there is barely any identifiable energy transition footprint in the country. And so for us to make commitments towards net zero, for Nigeria in 2060, and then all the other commitments that we have made towards 2030. A lot of people would wonder, I mean, based on what you see back in Nigeria, what are the what are the key pillars of this commitment that Nigeria has made um, in our nationally determined contribution? And how is this likely to influence 
government policy drive in the mid to long term. I mean, we imagine that we are going to make efforts to meet this commitment. So what do we expect to see, you know, yeah. as responses from government, from policymakers, from regulators? What are you expecting and how should businesses prepare? Okay, so that's a very uh, good and important question. Uh, President Mohammed Buhari pledged um, uh, that Nigeria will reach its net zero emissions by 2060. And what we have vowed is to heavily rely on natural gas for a stable transition. Um, you know, and you know, um, when you look at our existing, okay, pre-COP NDC, um, that's our nationally determined contribution, we have committed to 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 reduce our uh, greenhouse gas emissions by about 20 percent or is it 25 then you know we have involuntary of about 40 you know so this pledge takes the discussion to another level because when you look at our ndcs you see initiatives around clean cooking and all that but with net zero it's about decarbonizing your critical sectors and of course energy being a big emitter, emitting sector, you know, of course, falls um, 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 under consideration. So in terms of how realistic that pledge is, so 2060, this is 50 something years ahead. Because this is what I'm saying that I think Africans should be hopeful that we would industrialize and close that um, gap. You know, because we have to, if not, the gap will be so much because there's the digital uh, revolution also happening on that end, which we are far behind. Now with green and inclusive growth, you know, if you look at it in isolation, that's what would maximize benefit for us and create value because you're forcing, um, you're, you're refocusing companies operating in the different sectors to think about that shared value creation. How are you creating jobs through your um, existence as a corporate? How are you impacting the planet? How are you ensuring human rights are being met? How are you ensuring diversity and inclusion, which is critical for um, having a stable society with trust, you know, and, and all that. So just to, Sorry, just to jump on that response, and sorry to have um, caught you abruptly. I was having a conversation also at a board meeting I was at about a week ago, and one of the directors was saying to me, and this is a sentiment that a lot of people share, and he yeah. was saying that all of these developed economies built their economy off of the back of, you know, industrialization, which is costing the world so much now hmm. right but now that a lot of them have you know been able to cycle through some of the difficult um, um economic evolutions that many of these nations have gone through and are now in a comfortable place it's easy to start having conversations around climate action so so that's going green sorry going green is extremely expensive Already here, a lot of African nations are in significant debt position, having funded infrastructure off of the back of loans from DFIs, multilaterals, and, and the rest of them, some which 
are going to take us the next decade or two to pay out, right? Mm. And now our drive to decarbonizing our economy is going to make us have to begin to rethink, redesign and restructure our infrastructure. Yes. which again comes at a significant cost to these nations, many of which are already, you know, in very dire economic positions. So how do we work out, you know, the, the balance and the fairness, you know, across the world from that perspective? Is Africa being made to pay the cost for, you know, some of the benefits that the developed countries are enjoying? I mean, you spoke and said that, you know, some of these developing countries, the, the G20, they, they, they're responsible for 80% of, you know, global carbon emission or global green gases as it were. So where is the fairness in this? And are these sentiments right or wrong? And how do you as an advisor manage these sentiments and get people to, you know, redirect their focus to shared values and our existence as it were? Yeah, so, 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 so that's, um, you know, why in this net zero conversation, there is just transition and just transition is about ensuring we implement this in a way that creates those impact, desired impact. So energy is about affordable and equitable access to energy, right? When you look at, um, you know, it's about creating jobs. That, this is what sustainability is all about. And you know, the ideal is you're growing, you're achieving growth with low carbon index. So your, your GDP is growing and your, your, your carbon intensity is, is going down. Like you rightly said, because this is um, a new area with a lot of innovation happening. So, you know, a lot of the solutions are not that, exp uh, uh, they're, they're not that affordable and viable to, to implement at scale. But this is my take. You know, um, we still have underdeveloped sectors, even energy, we're still underdeveloped. And don't forget, hydropower is a form of clean energy as well you know, and all that. So I just think, you know, in, and that's why you do a transition plan, you play with your scenarios and do the sensitivity analysis because you can look at Europe, they are in the face of energy crisis as well, you know, so the transition definitely you want to ensure it's as stable as possible. So I honestly think this is about building, growing, you know, and building a climate resilient society that will be beneficial for all. Because when you look at India, that's why you see the reluctance of India, China, Russia, Australia, yes. all those people that heavily, um, you know, it's only South Africa yeah. that acted differently. And that's why you saw the kind of money they pulled. You know, um, I honestly think that whoever takes their transition plan seriously and develop something and have clear co uh, commitments. I honestly think we'll, that country will be able to pull, um, um, you know, uh, grants, you know, because if you look at COPE, the focus for developing countries was, was about mobilizing that 100, um, 100, um, 100 billion dollars you know, and then those loss and damages, compensation, you know, and all that. Well, it didn't yes. really happen. 
but I honestly see a lot of benefit in trying our best, you know, to to still grow. So for Nigeria, for example, gas, gas has a lot of methane emissions, but you can, there's a lot of um, uh, research going into converting that to hydrogen. Now, the, the, earlier we thought gas was the viable alternative. Alternative, but, yes. Exactly. Now it's looking like hydrogen, which is still under research. And that's why I feel Africa should take investing in R&D seriously to, to create their own solutions that work for them. Absolutely. You can, you can Absolutely. See India, so, sorry, let me make this. You can see India, if you remember, right after they had air pollution crisis that even mm -hmm. led to shutting down schools. And you know, that's what, what, what I heard. I don't know how true. This is not kind of like factual thing I've read. But I understand that China was, you know, pointed to you as we are the manufacturing hub of the world. So what do you expect? If, if you want us to shut down production, but I, when you look at it, truly, China is the manufacturing hub for the world. And absolutely the people too, the health mm -hmm. So I think we should Absolutely. open our minds and, and, and just give our best effort in that journey. I, I believe okay. there are groundbreaking technologies that would emerge, you know, but we also right. need to invest in creating solutions, innovating solutions that work for us. And that are tailored, exactly, that are tailored to value creation for our own people. Yes, I, yes. I think I think that. That makes absolute sense. So just just off of the back of this, I know that shortly upon return from the from the climate um, conference, the president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria has now passed the climate change bill, which a lot of people saw as a demonstration of commitment to our nationally determined um, commitments as a country. So what's the what's the import of this climate change bill and how does it impact trade and economy in, in the country. Yes, yeah, so like you rightly said, uh, there was a climate change act that was passed to help foster low carbon, high growth economic development and build a climate resilience um, society and through the attainment of set targets, because like you said, private sector too, you know, do have targets. So this act will apply to MDAs and also to public and private entities. And you know, um, you know, the, the there would be implementation mechanisms geared towards fostering that low carbon emission, environmentally, you know, uh, friendly society. So the bill, you know, seeks to um, establish um, the National Council on Climate Change. They will make policies. They have a mandate to produce a, a climate action plan for the country which, you know, of course, will aim to get us to that net zero destination. And, you know, um, there is also the provision of a climate change fund to help with some of the mitigation and especially the adaptation that will be maintained by that um, council. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, of course, the success of this relies on non-state actors. So when you look at this, let's pick the climate change fund, for example. If it's me, I would put carbon taxes to fund this, you know, especially to fund the adaptation initiatives, because 
you know, it's the emissions that is causing some of these, you know, uh, this and that's what you want to come. You know, of course, there will be fines and charges. There will be a lot of laws and, regulate and, and regulations because the MDAs would also, you know, require to decarbonize, to regulate those decarbonate. So transport would be required to help with um, um, accelerating mass transport, for example. You know, um, energy would 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 have to work. You know, regulate how to manage that transition. So I think there will be a lot of regulations. Many people are pushing for carbon taxes because even PwC did a study. If you uh, fix carbon trading, right, and have you know Absolutely. the 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 frameworks and all that, it will reduce carbon emissions by twelve percent. You know. Um, in total so you know there would be regulations with incentives you know and all that to help actualize you know um uh um you know the 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 nigeria's net zero so private companies have to follow this and you know yes. be aware of the the regulations that will follow suit but we don't know what will happen with enforcement because right now we have a lot okay. of so it's how effective the enforcement will be. The regulation will be, the enforcement will be, yes. I, I think I agree with you. And it's a good thing you touched on um, the non-state parties and the private sector, because I'm going to be taking the conversation to private sector now. Yeah. And um, so at the, at the conference, at the climate conference, um, we had over 2,000 non-state participants that joined the, collection, the Collective Action Initiative, which saw corporations commit to net zero emission targets by 2030. I think you spoke about um, something off of this around the automotive sector as well when you were making your, your earlier um, comments. So my question is why, is, why is it important for private sector to take a firm position on climate action? And yeah. how quickly do you think that this call to action will gain penetration in sub-Saharan Africa, given the perennial issues of poverty, lack of infrastructure, governance efficiency, inefficiency, I beg your, I beg your pardon, cost yeah. of energy, the cost of doing business, and all the other nuances that we're dealing with? How do you how, how do you think it will catch on in Africa? What's what what do you see in the in your what do they call it now? Is it your crystal ball, or how how are you reading yes. this plane out in Africa? Yes, yes like, like like so. One of the main goals of COP twenty six was collaboration, and you know enhanced international cooperation between non state actors. And I I think you know when you look at what came out of it, you can say that probably the private sector even did better than governments because there were quite clear laggards there, uh, you know, that were resisting or, you know, reducing, you know, some of those commitments. Like you saw coal and the, the way India and China pushed for facing down and not facing out and all that. But for private sector, I would say, you know, because I think probably private sector, a lot of, you know, you can, like I said, you can either be at compliance or value creation and a lot of private sector actors get that you can actually, you know, create value and there are many opportunities 
to be made to, uh, to you know in in actually embracing um, net zero. When was it? I was looking at. Um, I think I was preparing for another for a conference, and I saw you know there are fintechs that you know kind have created mortgages for greening your house. You know so. You can take a mortgage to change your lights to energy efficient, and you can imagine in the long run, your your operating expenses will go down because will drop absolutely. Their savings in absolutely, that, you know, and all that. So I I I honestly think you know um, supply chains would disrupt uh, the global supply chains. Absolutely, access to, access to quality partners, you know, investors. You know they, they 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 value this. You know they they are worried about you know climate risks and how it will impact their portfolios. Your ability to attract finance. There's a lot of greening happening. Mm. In economy, mm. finance, assets, everything is green. Is the 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 the, the new color now? Is the new language absolutely? <laughs> yes. And you know your ability to pull talent as well. So you know there's a lot at stake. For, for private sector as well, and you know, um, to be able to participate effectively in supply chains, to be able to uh, partner with you know quality in investors, access cheap finance because um, EPM, the more ESG fit companies are able to access finance cheaper. Yes. Yes, you know, there, there's just a lot, and you can create products. You know, um, green products. You can see um, the way banking. You know, a lot of innovation is coming out for in the bid for financial inclusion, for example. Yes, absolutely. And I just think that this is the solution for ending poverty. You know, and this, and you know, we are in a very good position to attract carbon offsetting programs. Because you know the mm. ways you can reduce the carbon directly, but if you can, the residual amount you can offset it. You know, so I think you know Africa can a lot of Africa can pitch. You know, to to be able to have programs that developed um, companies operating in developed countries can invest in and claim that offset. And impact investing is becoming huge, you know. And yes. I, I think if we take all this seriously, we can access um, impact funds um, with cost of energy. I honestly think probably mini grids might be a cheaper solution. We have high abundance of uh, uh, sun sunlight that can actually so solar mini grids. Solar, solar mini grids, solar, mini solar grid. powered mini grids. Yes, okay. and you you have little things for rural electrification that can mean yes. a lot and make a lot of difference and just start stimulating the economy, you know. And and also, okay. I think there's a lot to 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 gain, you know, uh, by private companies, you know, um, if you embrace, you know. Rukaya, you've said you've said a lot about capital mobilization. I just wanted to put this in a in a bit of context because I think this is the biggest sell to the private sector, and this is the biggest call to action to the private sector that your access to capital and your access to um, 
to skills and personnel may actually be impaired in the next couple of years if you do not position or take seriously, you know, um, sustainability and um, the rest of what we're talking about. So just to put this in context, um, over 400 investor firms holding about 130 trillion of the world's investable capital committed in Glasgow to aligning their portfolio to net zero by 2030. Mm. What does this even mean? I mean, it seems like a ginormous size of you know capital. And if the target date is 2030, that they would align their portfolio to net zero by 2030. What does this mean? What does this really even mean in the context of of um, global capital and the international financial markets? I'm reading this to mean if you're not aligned, you may not be able to access capital in the next couple of years, right? Absolutely. How does it how does it how does it cascade down to the everyday man on the street in Nigeria? I mean, we need to be able to, you know, help them understand that, okay, if the major capital um, aggregators are doing this, then of course your banks won't get money. What, how, how can we create a picture that comes home to the everyday man, how this would really impact them? It means uh, cost of spins will rise because when your cost of capital, there'll be a limited pool of investors, which I would be so surprised to see if, you know, the investors that would not, um, you know, also eventually align. So even if that pool of, of capital exists, it would be very expensive to access. So I think, you know, it's going to, you know, drive cost of operations and all that. And that translates, of course, last mile to that uh, consumer. So as a common man, this is what it means. As, as, as a company, I think this is enough to even make people jump and create and start taking that zero serious. Even us, there was a team that reached out, they were bidding for something and their requirement was climate policy. Now investors even do ESG due diligence because you know there's also that um, worry about greenwashing, you know, and, and all that. So, you know, it's this is another typical example of where private sector, non-state actors are even making policy irrelevant. So for you to access you would have to meet those requirements. And you know, even yes. rating agencies, you know, incorporate ESG metrics. Yes, their, yes, their yes. So you just have to, you know, know what are those material ESG areas and KPIs for you. And that's, I honestly see a win-win you know, for companies and society. Yeah. Yes, that, that this is this is really, really very interesting that you mentioned. We don't really have more time. Honestly, I wish we could continue to talk about this because this is one area where we need to continue to shed the light because it's not as complex as people feel. We just need to understand. So, Rukaya, the, the last and final question I'm going to okay. ask you is, for a small business owner in Nigeria, yes. what are the immediate quick wins that I can implement in my business that begins to show the signs of an intended compliance with sustainability, 
ESG and all the rest of the things that we've been talking about? What are the basic simple things that a small business can actually put in place that shows a consciousness to sustainability, to climate action, to um, carbon emission reduction and all of that? What can we really do? (laughs) This is a famous question that always comes up whether SMEs should also take ESG seriously or it's just relevant. I mean, you do interact with SMEs interact with large corporates as well. When you look at supply chain decarbonization, because some companies, over 50% of their carbon emissions come from uh, uh, their supply chain. So as they're decarbonizing themselves, they're also, you know, decarbonizing. So it also matters how you key into those, you know, corporate value chains. So, you know, ESG is meant to be integrated from strategy through to execution to reporting. You know, when you look at it, like I said earlier, the best and optimal state is to be at value creation. So for a small business, go back to the drawing board and think, you know, economically, how am I creating impact? How can I maximize creating jobs? How can I maximize, you know, how do I ensure I pay my taxes? How, how do I ensure I'm adding value to the economic growth there? And that's a prosperity pillar. For people, am I ensuring I'm paying minimum wage? What's the kind of rights that I'm giving my, 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 my employees? How am I developing them? Then my host community, how am I contributing as well to the world? Environmentally, how's my operations impacting the environment? How do I handle my waste? How do I ensure good health and safety in my office? So you see, these are lit- these are day to day. You know, how am yes. I incorporating, even if it is informally risk? You know, so ESG is just another lens in everything you do. From strategy to reporting to distance. And then, you know, another important element of ESG is stakeholder engagement. So, you know, so it, it's even, I can't think of how you can go wrong if you properly implement ESG, you know, because you're thinking inside out and you're thinking far because most times you are looking at what's likely to disrupt in the long term because it's about long-term value creation as well. Yes, so absolutely. Business, it's just simply to go to your drawing, even if you take, okay, what's my top five environment things to focus that I manage and mitigate was the top five social and you're looking at it you know and you're also engaging some of your stakeholders to understand their own perspective you know because it's sustainability there's that double materiality where prioritizing what's relevant and most important metrics for you you're also engaging some of your stakeholders so it's more balanced and that shared value creation Absolutely, absolutely. Rukaya, it has been a super 40 plus minutes for gaining <laughs> insights into the outcomes of the United Nations Climate Change Conference and the likely impact on the future of businesses in Nigeria. I must thank you most sincerely for making the time to join us today. And also to our audience, thank you for being a fabulous audience. Remember that the conversations continue on our social media handles. Please send us your comments and thoughts on today's episode. And we look forward to you joining us on subsequent episodes. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Simply by Deal HQ. Deal HQ Partners is an Africa-focused transactional advisory law firm operating out of Lagos, Nigeria. To know more about our services, please visit our website at www.dealhqpartners.com or follow us on our social media handles. On Twitter, we are at Deal HQ Law, Instagram at Deal HQ Law, and on Facebook at Deal HQ Law. And finally, on LinkedIn, we are at Deal HQ Partners. Thank you very much for listening.